Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Good morning. It's Friday. Today is the day the Lord has made. It is the 6th of September. Happy birthday. Shout out to Benjamin. I I love birthdays. Um, And I was reminded actually last night, I I do something called Reconnect One and it's a, it's literally like a one minute program and it airs on lots of stations across the country. And I was recording those last night. And as I was recording them, I was reminded of this experience that I had. In, uh, in taking a tour of a ministry center that focuses on the concerns and needs and recovery of young women who have been sex trafficked. And um, I promise you this is a good news story. And these women, uh, you know, they really were robbed of their childhoods and they most of them never even went to school. And so the main thing that's happening is that they are learning to live together as a family, which is a totally like learned thing. Like how do you actually function in a family system, in a home together, you know, everyone doing their appropriate part and everyone equally valued and all those kinds of things like that. They're learning to be like members of a family living in a home together, but they're also being educated. And so they, they go to school every day and I mean, in the, in the house and, um, and they're doing things that most of us did when we were kids, but they didn't do when they were kids because they were really just robbed of their childhoods. And so as we were taking the tour, uh, it, it appeared to me that the dining room was being like decorated for a birthday party. And before the question was out of my mouth, um, which probably would have been something like, whose birthday is it? Um, the, the gal that was giving me the tour said, um, we don't celebrate birthdays here. Most of us, you know, have nothing but horrible memories of our, you know, of our birth families. So we don't, we don't celebrate birthdays here. And so I was, you know, she saw my brow was furrowed because it clearly looked like a birthday party in terms of the decorations. And she said, oh, yeah, but we do celebrate rebirth days. And, and today is one of the girls' rebirth days. And again, before I asked the question, she said, you know, a rebirth day is the first day you remember having hope, the first day you remember being able to breathe, it's the day somebody saved you. And that's your rebirth day. And um, before I left, she handed me a card and she said, I thought you might like to see this rebirth day card. This is the, this is the card they give uh, on, on your rebirth day. And so um, I opened it up as I walked out the door and it was First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 which I would encourage you to read today and consider um, what it means to be reborn into a living hope and to consider today your rebirth day, the day that you were saved, the day that you were rescued. And some people uh, actually have the kind of story of rescue that these young women have. But every one of us who's a Christian has a rebirth day story to tell as well. And so I want to offer that to you today as you um, head out into the world that God so loves, um, where there are a lot of 
lost and grieving people in need of salvation and recognize that you are an agent of grace and today could be the rebirth day of someone else. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at MTHawk, former policy director of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, but now public theologian extraordinaire. How's that? <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. I appreciate it. <laughs> and like PhD student. Yes? Maybe? Yeah. Well, that's it. well maybe. Well, taking taking the uh, entrance exam in about a month. So we'll <gasps> okay. See. Oh, may they but, let you but in. But I got through the application. I got, I got you didn't, you, the application you didn't ask in, us and for, I got the you invitation. Didn't, oh, you have the invitation. Yeah, I was going to say, you didn't ask us for, like, a reference. Like, hmm, here's what Matt does in public in front of a lot of people. Just saying, it might help. Got, it I, might I, hurt. I, I have no I had, idea. I had, I had a stack of references. Uh, my association with the uh, Mornings with Car- Carmen LaBerge may, have, may or may not have been on my resume. I forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Hey, we love talking to you because you um, not only are uh, a brother in Christ, but a really astute student of what is happening at the intersection of what I'll say is faith and politics uh, in our cultural conversations yeah. today. And so... Um, I forget which one of these conversations we're supposed to be starting with today. Are we starting with the conversation about finding our identity if we don't find yeah. it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this identity conversation, I thought this was a really interesting article on public discourse. Um, and the conversation is really, you know, like I put a fill in the blank because they want you to find your identity in something other than Christ, right? And I'm interested in people finding their identity in Christ. But what they talk about is the tendency in this generation for people to find their identity in the primal screams of identity right. politics. So I just thought it'd be fun yeah. to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It was a fascinating uh, article. There's a review over uh, at the Public Discourse, which is uh, uh, kind of what long-form essay kinds of treatment of um, of cultural issues, cultural and political issues. And uh, there's a review by Mar- of Mary Eberstadt's new book, Primal Screams, how the sexual revolution created identity politics. So Mary Eberstadt is someone who has been uh, researching the origins and effects of the sexual revolution in her previous books for some time now. So she's kind of carving out a niche for herself in that. And uh, she, like you said, uh, writes this book called Primal Screams, and it's all about identity politics. And uh, I, I learned a new, a new word reading this article called identitarianism, which presumably <laughs> is kind of this uh, embrace of, you know, atomized identities uh, across uh, across um, our neighbors. And she's basically arguing that our identity politics today arose from what she calls a deep anthropological wound cut open by the sexual revolution. And the ascent of identity politics basically explains that people are we're all having identity crises kind of on a as atomized, large, massive scale. And that identity crisis, she places the burden um, on really the uh, effects of the sexual revolution, which resulted by family breakdown that we've been, you know, social conservatives have been talking about for decades, but also individual breakdown. So it's not only kind of wrecking our institutions and the families, but also uh, she's she's connecting it now 
uh, to these individual breakdowns that we see that includes, um, you know, pro- gosh, probably, I mean, she's not making this connection, um, but anywhere from, you know, suicides to, I envision, mass shootings uh, where uh, people uh, in the more dramatic sense and also all these, you know, uh, uh, identity associations that we're all kind of striving for. Um, why does that matter for politics? Uh, you know, the talk, it connects to our conversations previously about individualism versus our identity in Christ and our identity, therefore, by extension, in our local church community. Uh, Christians and I think even conservatives are, um, are we're, we're kind of vulnerable to forgetting about. And so uh, when you read this kinds of thing, these kind of treatments of culture upstream from politics and uh, individual life, uh, I, you know, I think it kind of underscores our need for Christian empathy first when we're interacting or uh, disagreeing with someone on political issues, because we got to we got to understand that our neighbors uh, from coast to coast here in the U.S. have all been shaped as we have been by cultural trends. We got to recognize that our neighbors have been shaped by those cultural trends as well that are largely outside of their their cause and, and people who have not been exposed to the gospel, um, m- m- you know, probably far more than we think think uh, is the case. And that our trigger empathy before outrage for us. Mm. So I'm going to read um, one paragraph from this so that uh, folks can be stimulated in their thinking today because it echoes much of what we talk about here on the show uh, almost every day. Um, So this is actually a paragraph that I am pulling from the article that Matt and I um, are talking about. The article is, if you don't find your identity in a family, you'll look for it in the primal screams of identity politics. Luma Sims is the author, and you can find it at thepublicdiscourse.com. The paragraph reads... The question, who I am, has been with us since Eden, along with other questions like where do I belong and what is my purpose in life, and so on. These questions and others like them are the quest for meaning, which has always compelled the human heart. That's actually a quote from John Paul II. Uh, There was a time when these questions were answered with more certainty through the many spheres of a person's belonging, immediate and extended family, friendships, religion, religious community, other spheres of attachments, including one's city. Uh, Now, um, Sims also wrote in in an article for National Affairs about this same topic uh, where um, she talked about the shared bonds between people and these like overlapping spheres and how that shapes our identity. And so the walk-off sentence uh, in this this paragraph is this. Today, man is in a grave identity crisis, not because he's asking or not asking the question, who am I, but because the thickness of life that used to offer meaningful answers has thinned down to gauze. Uh, you've yeah. heard me. Uh, you've heard me reference here before that we are living in a generation that's living like on the shadow of a shadow of real faith. Um, you might also hear an echo here of C.S. Lewis's reference to the concept of men without chest. So those are the kinds of conversations that we want to be having uh, substantively, not only in our own thought life, but in the conversations we're having with others today. Um, folks are in an identity crisis. It is not new. There is an identity thief out there. Um, And he is seeking to kill and steal and destroy your understanding of who you are, not only as an image bearer of the living God, but as a purposeful person uh, redeemed in Christ Jesus. Matthew Hawkins and I will be back in just a minute, and we are going to talk about Christian schools and employment rights. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. (laughs) 
All right, for those of you who are now stalking me for the link for that article, I have just posted it on my Twitter feed, so you can follow me at Carmen LaBerge on Twitter, and I will try to, you know, post out the articles that we make reference to and talk about here. All right, so Matthew T. Hawkins is here today. I use the T because he uses it in his uh, in, in his public-facing persona, so you can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com, at MTHawk. Um, so, Matt, Christian schools and employment rights, maybe we would also just put this under the giant rubric of uh, religious employment or employment in religiously affiliated institutions and or I think this does sort of like trickle down to the conversation about um, Christian owned businesses. So talk with us about what's going on here. Sure. Uh, Well, let's see. Uh, NBC News has uh, a pretty surprisingly quality write-up um uh, <laughs> uh, isn't, isn't that uh, kind of funny survey. that we're like we're like genuinely surprised when there's yeah. like actually <laughs> substantive accurate religiously um appropriate reporting in secular yeah. out of secular so i just i, I want to just give yeah. a little shout out to religion reporters yeah. out there working in secular media yeah, well, and I, I do have a I do have a qualifier. They they do a, a decent survey of the legal landscape uh, over there at NBC. But you know, the funny thing is, still in 2019, they they commit the classic the class not the fake news, but the classic news bias that Bernard Goldberg t- exposed to us years ago. Uh, they include quotes from LGBT rights attorneys, uh, but no statement from anybody on the religious rights side at all. Um, at that at least that I could find. Uh, but the survey, nevertheless, of the legal situations uh, is is pretty decent. Um, it's prompted by uh, a teacher who has sued the Archdiocese of Indianapolis uh, because they, she claims they discriminated against her on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, she's 63, and they discovered that she's had married to a female spouse since 2015, and they basically told her her contract's not going to be renewed. So uh, you have a Catholic school hiring a teacher and then uh, and then dismissing her because of um, uh, what appears to be an improper relationship related to their doctrine and theology. Right. And so uh, this is just an example of the debates and the legal uh, conflicts that are ensuing now that um, uh, gay marriage is legal in all 50 states. And uh, this is, as you say, then, you know, a pretty common thing. Uh, the thing that strikes me about the uh, NBC News article is, uh, like they said, a lot of this is unsettled. And so uh, more or less uh, people of the political left will agree that mostly that uh, churches, you know, houses of worship have religious hiring rights, right? So uh, a mosque can only, has the right to only hire uh, Muslims, right? Uh, Christian uh, Baptist churches has a right to only hire Baptists. Um, but then uh, there, where we get you know dis- disagreement is to what extent do religious institutions that are not houses of worship uh, have? So uh, a lot of these have to do the people who want to carve out. Uh, kind of carve out this stuff is like, okay, well, if you teach theology, then uh, a theological matter or a doctrinal matter, then of course, like you ought to be able to hire according to those doctrines and beliefs. Uh, But if you're just doing stuff that's, you know, quote unquote secular, like if you're a janitor, then those kind of doctrinal um, and ethical commitments ought not be uh, imposed on you uh, by a religious hire or religious employer. And, uh, that's kind of the crux of a lot of this stuff. 
and um, we're going to see more and more of these until uh, until some of these court cases make or make their way through the, the court system. Okay, so I want to equip people. Um, when you are asked today about that or when that issue is raised, you know, so it doesn't matter if you're a janitor. Actually, that is the example that – and this has been like three years ago now. But when um, – um, when Senator Marco Rubio was on the program, he actually used a janitor as a really good example of a person who is living out their faith in the public sphere in a way that might not be obvious to everyone else. And he said, you know, I um, it might be obvious to people that I am living out my faith in this way, serving uh, in the U.S. Senate. But it's it. But a person who is serving as a janitor is also living out their faith. In, you know, in the day-to-day, work-a-day world. And right. neither one of those is superior to the other in terms of the way God views uh, a human life. And so if you are living um, in Christ and on purpose and for a purpose, and you are doing whatever labor it is that the Lord has set before you to do, regardless of where that is or, or you know, the what we might consider in our culture the relative value of the position, it doesn't matter. So you could be teaching theology in in a school, or you could be cleaning the school, or you could be driving the bus. And all of those, in in terms of our understanding of um, vocation and gifting and the way the body works together to glorify God, the body being you know the people of Christ deployed in the world today, we recognize all of those as of essential value. And no, yeah. no job in a Christian institution is any less important than any other job. Some of them are more, more high profile and get paid more, but none of them is any less important. Right. And uh, in the legal land, uh, on the legal landscape, where you're, the Supreme Court's going to hear, I think, in October, like three cases that are going to be related to this. Uh, and in kind of the, the, I think the ultimate goal of the LGBT uh, folks um, is that they want to get sexual orientation, gender identity, a.k.a. SOGI, uh, included in the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, or some kind of equivalent policy, uh, which even even uh, religious employers are, are more or less uh, um, uh, um, need to submit to as far as they can't discriminate on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. And uh, the LGBT rights crowd would like uh, SOGI protections built into that, right? So it goes kind of above uh, all the normal uh, or kind of our common understanding of religious freedom and religious hiring. Uh, and like you said, you know, this is a, you know, it extends to schools, it's, it extends to higher education. Uh, we saw uh, a different religious freedom related thing uh, in the Hobby Lobby decision that, that aired in our favor. Uh, there's another case here where you had a transgender woman, so a biological male who was transitioning. She was an employee of a funeral home. And when she when he started uh, dressing as a as a woman uh, at the at the place of employment, the, the employer said, mm-hmm. yeah, at the office, uh, uh, she, they said that that didn't that didn't square with their view of how they serve their their clients and that made things difficult. And so they they let her go. Uh, you know, these things are, you know, we said a funeral home, we've said education, um, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of Christians who go into the public square, uh, they're not religious hirers necessarily, uh, or their, their business isn't necessarily religious, right? They're not uh, 501c3 or whatever. 
Uh, and so they often assume that they're not going to have to deal with this, this stuff. But as we saw in the, in the Hobby Lobby stuff, it didn't have to do with uh, Soji-related things, but had to do with government imposition of, of uh, on freedom of conscience. You know, we had a Baptist uh, we had, there was an electrician, uh, shop, I think in Florida, who was part of the, um, part of the plaintiffs, uh, in that because they, they're Baptist and they wanted to operate their business according to their Baptist convictions. Uh, and in America to date, anyway, you still have that right, even though we see these conflicts at the state and local level. Matthew Hawkins, thank you so much. We do not have time to talk today about another very provocative conversation, which is an article entitled The Gospel According to Marianne Williamson. Oh, I, I, we're going we're gonna to have to. I know. And and the transcendental meditation conversation, I think, uh, you know, that includes a conversation about her as well. That's like that's her jam, man. So yeah. we're going to have to um, circle back around to that. Thank you, as always, for helping us uh, read the headlines of the day through a Christian worldview. That's Matthew Hawkins. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. Thanks, Carmen. Okay, so there's a lot of uh, churning on the immigration front here in the United States of America. A lot of that is not new to any of us. We have been talking about immigration concerns and issues here um, as a part of you know what it means to be pro-life and be concerned about people, regardless of where they were born or the color of their skin, but also recognizing that uh, we are a nation and that we are, you know, we're a nation of laws and there there ought to be a process by which people enter the country, whether they are refugees or asylum seekers um, or entering for, you know, economic uh, purposes to improve our economy and to improve their own economic life. Uh, But our immigration system is pretty much broken. And so, you know, I'm a person who believes we need comprehensive immigration reform But I also think that that needs to be influenced strongly by Christians. And so Matthew Sorens is going to be back today with us from World Relief. We're going to talk about um, some some things that are happening on the immigration front and uh, just headlines related to the way people are being treated. All that's next on Mornings with Carmen. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, one thing I've learned about baking is that if you miss just one critical ingredient, like baking powder, your cake could literally flop. And I have to admit, that's happened to me a time or two. No one walks into a kitchen for the first time and can immediately throw together a cake. It takes knowledge, a good recipe, and the right tools and ingredients. You could say the same thing about your finances. Having all the components can help you get the best results. So ask yourself... Do you have the knowledge, tools, resources, and plan to get the best results? As you're creating your recipe for a content, confident, and generous life, seek out some wise financial counsel. Set up some time with a financial professional. Just like learning to bake, they'll be able to help you understand what you don't know and show you the tools, resources, and recipe for a more content, confident, and generous life. Joining me now, Matthew Sorens from World Relief. I'm going to encourage you to follow him on Twitter, Matthew Sorens. Also follow World Relief at World Relief. You can also visit him online, worldrelief.org. Welcome back, Matthew. 
Yeah, great to be back, Carmen. Okay, so you guys have some great stuff posted right now um, at worldrelief.org. I um, I loved the stories from the border. I thought Annette's story was really powerful. Um, I appreciated the story that you passed along about, um, I mean, it was actually from the USA Today, um, about a Liberian, uh, you know, a person who was a refugee from Liberia that, you know, really gives a, a an interesting testimony, makes a compelling case raises significant moral questions for us today. Um, Maybe just give us a bit of an update on the refugee and immigration front. Um, I think it's hard for all of us to keep track of all of the different and disparate threads of this immigration conversation. Pretty much what, you know, our news cycle is dominated by is, you know, how many more feet of the wall have gone up and at what cost. Um, but not necessarily these human stories. So, uh, you know, you help us remember the human face of all of this. So just give us a sense of an update since we've talked to you last. Sure. Well, it's very fair that people can't keep track of this because it's basically my full-time job to keep track of it, and I feel like I'm struggling. So normal people going out with mm-hmm. their lives, it's very understandable that it's hard to keep track of. There has just been a lot of, of new policies, uh, mostly uh, sort of at the administrative level. So not that Congress is passing laws, uh, but just the, the laws that we have are being reinterpreted in some ways. Um, so it relates to refugees in particular. And so these are people who are overseas, outside of the United States, have fled their country or in a neighboring country. And they are people who the U.S. government has determined have a well-founded fear of persecution because of particular reasons under U.S. law. And historically, the U.S. takes... Um, a small percentage of those individuals globally each year, usually somewhere between one quarter to one half of one percent. That's somewhere between, um, you know, 50 to 75,000 in most years in the last several decades. Uh, this year, it's down to 30 30,000, um, which is at a time when the number of refugees globally is increasing, that the number coming to the United States has decreased pretty dramatically. And we're waiting to find out what it will be for the coming year. So that decision usually gets announced sometime on or shortly before October 1st, so within the next month. And the the rumors are that advisors to President Trump are recommending a ceiling of zero. So basically shutting Mm -hmm. down refugee resettlement to the United States. Um, Let's just talk. Let's just pause for a minute and let's just remind people the reason that a person would be, you know, it, it would be a refugee is that they cannot go home. Exactly. So it's people who have, our government degrees, have a well-founded fear of persecution, specifically on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Um, So, for example, uh, a very significant share of of the folks we've seen in the last decade or so are people who are persecuted because of their Christian faith, Um, or sometimes for other religious traditions, Yazidis out of Iraq or, or, or Syria or or Rohingya Muslims out of Burma, um, who are, along with Christians, persecuted by the Burmese government. They're people who've then left their country because often they feared they would be killed, uh, often after a relative had been killed. And they're often living in a camp setting of some sort or um, basically surviving in that second country. And the resettlement program has always been a lifeline for some of the most vulnerable of those cases. I mean, there's 25 million refugees in the world who meet that legal definition. The U.S. has never contemplated bringing in, you know, more than a tiny share of them. But at least we've taken that small share. And that's also allowed us diplomatically to persuade other countries to do their part as well. 
And the U.S. has very significantly stepped back from that in the last few years and is apparently contemplating really completely stepping back. Um, or even if the ceiling is 5,000 or 10,000, I mean, this is a program that in 1980 brought in more than 200,000 refugees to the United States. So it is certainly a real decline in the U.S.'s role in taking a share of the most persecuted people in the world. Matthew, um, from your perspective, like, why why do we perceive ourselves? Why do some people in our country perceive America as not having enough? We don't have we don't we must not have. There must be a sense of scarcity. There must be a sense that we don't have enough and therefore we must be stingy with what we do have Um, because that's what – I mean to me that's what it feels like if I am going to resist allowing somebody who's in legitimate desperate need, legitimately cannot go uh, back to their homeland, is legitimately at risk because of their system of belief or their or the color of their skin um, or their social group. They literally cannot, they don't have a home to go to. They they are like globally homeless. What What is it, what's going on in the American psyche that has gotten us to the place where we don't think in this great land of plenty that we don't have enough to share? Yeah. You know, I think that that's I'd say there's probably two major misconceptions that fuel why a lot of Americans think it's a good idea to keep all refugees out. One is that sort of scarcity mindset and the idea that, well, we, you know, our economy is such that we don't have enough to help other people. And there's two problems there. One is, I think, from a biblical perspective, it's really hard to take that position, especially if you compare the United States to anywhere else in the world. We're actually very blessed economically. But also there's a misconception that refugees are coming to take stuff when it while it is true, refugees get some help when they first arrive and churches are along you know, with groups like World Relief are on the front lines of providing that help. If you fast forward 20 years, the average refugee adult and there's been studies on this out of University of Notre Dame, the average refugee adult has paid in twenty one thousand dollars more in taxes at the federal, state and local level than the combined cost of any sort of assistance they've received. So long-term, these people are actually an economic benefit to the United States. Uh, They're filling employment needs that, in parts of our economy that actually are really desperate for workers, that are holding up economic growth if we can't find people to plug into those jobs. And, I mean, many of them are entrepreneurs. They start small businesses actually at higher rates than U.S. citizens. So it's both, A, even if they were an economic drain, I think we should have compassion as from a Christian perspective, but B, they're not. And, and then I think the other big concern people have is around security and safety. And there's, at least, uh, again, from a biblical perspective, you know, the good Samaritans called to love your neighbor. Na- when we look at him loving his neighbor, it meant someone help beating someone, helping someone who'd been beaten up on the side of the road who was in a dangerous part of the road. There was some risk involved. So I think for Christians... We can't dismiss that call, even if there's some risk. But actually, in the U.S. context, there's really not much risk. I mean, the U.S. government has a very thorough vetting process for people coming in through the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. Uh, There have been more than three million refugees who've come to the United States since the Refugee Act of 1980 was signed into law. And it's still true that not a single one of them has taken an American life in a terrorist attack. I mean, this association that people have in their minds between refugees and terrorism is not borne out by the data. I mean, it, there have been terrorist attacks in the U.S., fortunately, actually quite few. They've usually been perpetrated actually by U.S. citizens. Um, and when it has been foreigners, they've not been people who came through the extra level of screening that 
uh, is required for those through the refugee resettlement program, at least in any case where an American life was lost since 1980. Yeah, I always appreciate how you help us distinguish, you know, these these conversations, because I think we tend to lump them all in together. Refugees are they do go through a very different process than immigrants and uh, and I mean, immigrants in general. And certainly when we're talking about asylum seekers, that's a different group of people as well. And then we have this sort of uh, group that are here um, and they have this deferred action, like, right, they came here as, as sure. children. And so I want to turn to that conversation in just a minute because there was um, uh, there was an interesting uh, announcement about a deportation and then a reversal by the Trump administration because of real outcry. And it has to do with the humanitarian concerns related to people with extraordinary disabilities or medical needs who are getting their treatment here in the United States, but um, who, at least in one case, the, the deportation order came through anyway. So um, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Matthew Sorens is here from World Relief. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Matt Sorens, you can follow him at Matthew Sorens on Twitter, also at World Relief, and you can find what he's working on uh, at World Relief, and it's dot... Dot org. <laughs> you know, it. I can't ever remember anymore. People have so many dots, and so thank <laughs> you, uh, worldrelief.org. Um, all right, let's turn our attention to this story that a lot of us um, uh, saw... Uh, develop over time. We were we were initially horrified. The Trump administration uh, was forcing people. Well, they were issuing um, deportation orders to families who have members of their family who are receiving critical medical services here in the United States. And so, essentially, I mean, there's just no question that deporting uh, that deporting these people would result in their death. Um, talk with us about this. Yeah, so there's a it's a very small program, actually, So it, because it is exceptionally rare that the federal government has has offered this opportunity. But it is in really unique cases of, of medical situations. Where, and again, we're talking life and death sort of situations, not somebody's got a cold or, you know, the flu or something. But um, people have heard of deferred action in the context of uh, what's called DACA or deferred action for childhood arrivals. That was a sort of larger scale program that the Obama administration did. Basically saying, you for young people, we're not going to deport you because you're our lowest priority. Well, there's always, even before that, been a much smaller program on a case-by-case basis of deferring action for someone who could be potentially deportable, but because of their medical situation, um, our federal government, or often and actually the medical situation of a U.S. citizen relative whom they're caring for, our federal government said, we are not going to deport you as long as you meet these qualifications and you check in every, you know, on a regular basis to to renew this this opportunity. So, uh, for example, a friend of mine is an evangelical free pastor, um, works out of a, a ministry called Immigrant Hope in Atlanta. And they had a case where they helped, there was this newborn born two or three years ago without a blood vessel to their lungs, which basically meant um, they would have died, but for the medical treatment they got. So the child is a U.S. citizen, but her brother, who's now seven, was able to, with Tim and Immigrant Hope's help, was able to get um, deferred action based on this medical situation. So you've got the seven-year-old boy whose presence in the United States is dependent upon this. Well, in the middle of August, towards the end of August, they got a letter saying, we're ending this program. You have 33 days to get out of the country before you're deportable. So obviously, you can imagine this seven-year-old boy and his mother come into uh, Tim's office very distraught, aware that if they're left, do they take their 
I think now two or three year old daughter with them. And basically that means this child would die. Do they leave them in the care of the government, you know, foster care or something in the United States? It's just a real crisis. And again, there's not a huge number of these cases, but they're sufficiently um, heartbreaking that it got a lot of news attention that the um, United States Citizenship and Immigration Service had sent these letters. And the pushback to that policy was the USCIS has now stepped back. They haven't actually reversed the policy completely. They've said that they're going to reconsider these particular cases of renewing deferred action. As far as we can tell, tell they're still not going to consider any new requests. So they are in some ways ending this program of deferred action for um, humanitarian medical situations. But at least for those who currently have it, they've said they are going to reconsider those, um, you know, the decision they had made to, to end that deferred action. So hopefully that means these individuals will be able to have their cases reconsidered and be allowed to stay. Um, again, in some cases, these are small children or it's their mother or their, their siblings who are taking care of them. Um, but it's also a good example that you know, those phone calls to Congress and things like that are, are actually really important. So are, I think there's a lot of prayer for families who are in the situation. And it, it's an important reminder that those things are really important in our democracy when our government makes decisions that I think most of us think are a little bit heartless. So one of the one of the realities of this would would be that it would either result in family separation uh, or somebody defying uh you know, defying the U.S. government under an order to leave, because that's that's either if like the mom, the mom yeah. with the seven year old and the two year old, she has to either follow the deportation order and take her seven year old out of the country with with her two year old who will die if yeah. they do that or leave her two year old here, in which case you and I as taxpayers are somehow going to become full time responsible for that individual. Yeah. And or maybe and, there's some relative or something. But yeah. Yeah, but but then we're talking about family separation, which leads me to this next conversation about where are we in terms of family separation um, and what is going on. I think it's really hard for people to keep track of this particular storyline when we're talking about what's happening at the southern border. Yeah, so again, whole other context, but at the southern border, back to the summer of 2018, we had this widespread policy, a, a zero tolerance policy, sort of applied to everyone apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, children were taken away from parents and parents were charged criminally and kids were reclassified as if they were unaccompanied. Like on the books, it looked like they had showed up without a parent at all. Um, well, that policy was in place for a few months and then because of outcry, it was pulled back. Um, it's not happening on a widespread basis, but some of the things we've seen in the news just in the past few days, an inspector general report from the federal government looking at what the effect on those thousands of kids was and probably not surprisingly, it, it's been pretty terrible. I mean, the level of trauma that these children went through, they, some of them thought that their parents had been killed. Some of them thought their parents had abandoned them. The psychological impact of that is not resolved, um, even in cases where the kids have been reunited with the parents. It is also important to note that while that underlying policy has been pulled back, so it's not happening on a widespread basis, there still is some family separation that's happening at the border. Um, it's mostly happening when... Um, there's very minor criminal issues or, or significant criminal issues. There's cases where family separation would be appropriate, but it's also happening for things like traffic violations. So the parent is, you know, has a traffic violation and they've taken kids from them on that basis because they're considering them a criminal alien or where, you know, a child shows up with their grandmother instead of with their mother or father. And that's considered because that's, unless there's been a legal adoption, which, you know, a lot of families coming from El Salvador or Guatemala, 
didn't have the resources to go through a legal adoption process. The child will be taken from that grandparent. Um, so we still do see some of that happening, but it's on a much smaller scale than what was happening uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago. Um, the other way we see this is just in deportation policies. Um, there have been you know, deportation of parents, which leaves kids behind. And that, frankly, happened under the Obama administration. That happened under the Bush administration. Um, it's still a form of family separation that I think people don't realize, but, you know, happens in every administration until we figure out the larger issues in our immigration policies. All right. Hey, um, we got like a minute. Um, there's so many other things that you and I could talk about. There's such a range of topics and issues here, but I think you have an updated version of your book. Could you tell us quickly about that? Yeah. So, um, uh, my colleague Jenny Yang and I um, did a book back in 2009 called Welcoming the Stranger, um, focused on how do we think as Christians about the topic of immigration, all these issues, you know, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, people who are here unlawfully. And that book, uh, we did an updated edition not too long ago, so that's available now. It's called Welcoming the Stranger. And we really want it to be a tool for the church to think Christianly, uh, not just from a Republican or Democratic perspective, but from a biblical perspective about these topics. Yeah, it's just an excellent resource. Uh, Matthew Sorens from World Relief, thank you so much for being with us here today. You guys can check it all out, worldrelief.org. We'll be right back. Okay, there's so many things that um, you and I can concern ourselves with today. Let's be sure that we concern ourselves with the people who are in front of us, who we, uh, who maybe they just need a smile, a gracious comment. They need something other than the criticism that maybe is is right there lapping at the edge of our personality. Uh, so give people the grace today that they otherwise don't deserve but really desperately need. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.